and welcome to another edition of Health Solutions with Sean and Janet Needham, where Team Needham discusses everything healthcare. I'm your host, Sean Needham, and I'm streaming live from my home podcast studio, and I am super excited to have Dr. Michelle Gordon on our podcast today. Um, she is actually a native Washingtonian, doesn't l- grew up not far from me, south of me um, in Richland, Washington, and I'm in Moses Lake, Washington, and it's super cool to connect with people. She is a physician, um, general surgeon, and she decided to make a transition, a career transition a couple of years ago um, into lifestyle medicine. And, and we will discuss that and her transition and um, our our personal transitions, because um, both of us have a story behind it where, you know, we weren't the healthiest ourselves. So, Michelle, Dr. Michelle Gordon, welcome to our show. Thanks for having me. Happy yeah. to be here. So tell us a little bit about your backstory and even go far as back, go far, go far enough back where you grew up and then what, what brought you into med school? Yeah. So I grew up in Washington state in this small, small town of Richland that actually. Now, wait a minute. I, I, I got to stop you. Yeah. Okay. You're calling Richland a small town. Remember, I live in Moses Lake. It was a small <laughs> town then. It's not, and it, the Tri-Cities have really grown, but. Yeah. Yeah, it was a small town. It was actually even smaller before uh, the Manhattan Project took over in That's the right. in the forties, and there were only about eight hundred um, about eight hundred people. It was a farming community, and what happened was, I think Washington D.C. found a, an area as far away from it in the contiguous United States that it could to practice this Manhattan Project stuff near a body of water. (laughs) And that's, that's uh, what the Hanford project became. And we actually at the Hanford project built the plutonium for Nagasaki. And a lot of people don't know that, but it's the claim to fame of the Tri-Cities. So it's become a think tank and there's a lot of bright people uh, that that go there, and when I was there, my, my father uh, died there in 2017, and so I went back several times, and I met a lot of people cycling because I like to cycle, and through the cycling shop there called Greenies. Shout out to Greenies, Greenies yeah, and, right off G-way um, or close to G way. Is it on? G-way? It's yeah, it's it's on it's on G way. I think yeah. I think yeah. I don't. No, it's on. It's close. It's really close. It's either that or it's on the corner or something. Anyway, yeah. So, um, but I met other people, you know, that were really active but they were all like PhDs and, you know, particle physicists or, you know, whatever. So, uh, so that's the background, but it was a small town then it's about four hours from Seattle by car. And I always like felt like I was really constrained and I didn't realize it was before it became a really great wine country. Um, And I grew up, you know, I graduated high school in 1983. So we just had our 40th reunion and I'm gay. And so if you've ever been to Southeastern Washington state, it's a very much like Southern Idaho where there's a church on every corner and living in a certain way is not okay. And so I struggled throughout the eighties with my own identity and trying to understand who I was. Um, And ended up getting married in 1988 to a guy, had a baby, all that. And then realized that that's not me. And we separated. Um, But as far as becoming a doctor, so one thing about living in the Tri-Cities is that there is um, intelligence all around you. Yeah. It is It is just one of these places that has a lot of smart people and you're expected to perform and go to college and, and do stuff. But for me, there was a time when I was five years old 
that I didn't realize until maybe January of 2019, I had this memory where I'm standing, I'm five years old, I'm standing behind my mom, you know, so I, I like my eyes are right at her, the behind, behind her knees. And she says, those guys are so rich, they're doctors. And she was talking about her two brothers who were family practice doctors in, in California. And I heard this and my little brain went to work and it said, oh, mom wants to be rich. So I, and the doctors are rich. So that's the only way I can make money. I got to make my mom happy. And, and that's actually what happened. And I entered medical school at age 31. Wow, that's quite yeah. the story. And, and back to Richland and smart yeah. people. There used to be, it was a few years ago, but they it used to have the highest concentrations, the highest concentration of PhD in any city, of PhDs in any city. Yeah, I don't know anymore. I, I do know that, you know, I eventually, yeah, I went, I moved to California. I got married. I started college in 1988, uh, right after we got married. And I went to Long Beach City College because I was a bit of a rebellious teen. And so I had to make up for my high school education because I didn't really perform. And I was, I was busy, you know, smoking pot and kind of <laughs> being a bit of a rebel. And uh, so I went to community college and then I applied to two colleges out of community college. I applied to UC Irvine and Harvey Mudd College. And I got into both and UC Irvine would have been two more years. Harvey Mudd would have been three to four more years. And I thought, you know, I'm going to go with the harder choice. And if you know anything about Harvey Mudd College, Harvey Mudd is a college that competes with MIT and Caltech for students and has the highest rate of PhDs per capita of any college in the country and professional degrees. So almost anybody who graduates from Harvey Mudd gets into medical school, law school, PhD, whatever. So, yeah, so that's that's what I did. And I'm the only woman, as far as I know, to ever have a baby while matriculating at that school. Wow. Wow. Congratulations. That, that's an accomplishment. Yeah. And then you go to, where'd you go to med school? I went to med school at College of Osteopathic Medicine of the Pacific in Pomona, California. I applied all over the country. I got interviewed there. And interestingly, my interview um, was scheduled for April 15th of 1995. And on April 7th, my brother died in Atlanta. And people at work were like, can't you change your interview? And I'm like, no. Not really. Um, no. no. Mm -hmm. And so I went and, and you know, I talked about my brother and got a little teary and I had to like control my emotions and they waitlisted me. And so I wasn't their first choice, but I, in, if you remember the nineties, remember the nineties, how I, 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 I'm pretty much your age. So, yeah. yeah so, so remember in the nineties with the, um, answering machines, oh, yeah. you had to call in with and, and push a button. So I was working, I had a job and I was working in it doing something. Now, let me just back up a minute. My son. So I graduated Harvey Mudd college and I started a job in downtown Los Angeles, working at a law firm in it waiting to kind of like doing something before I started medical school. I wanted to work a bit and figure out like how to deal with my, my life because I didn't have a good marriage and my son. And what happened was my son got sick. He got really sick and he almost died of leukemia and he was 21 months old. And so I had to quit the job. And um, after he stabilized a bit after treatment, then I, I took a job actually at, back at Harvey Med doing IT and they were really supportive of me. And what happened was I, 
I, um, I was sitting in my office and I had gone to this college, you know, this, this interview with medical school and calling them up. Like every week I call them again, do you have a, do you have a seat? Cause they waitlisted me. So I'm like new, if they got a seat, I would get in. And, um, and I just, I'd call and talk to them and say, look, you know, I'm right here. I'll drop everything. If there's, if there's a seat, I'll drop everything. Now at this point, you know, my husband and I had broken up and, you know, I was living kind of hand to mouth because he wasn't really supporting us anymore. And then of course my son who was still getting treated for cancer, I was driving back and forth and sometimes I'd have to call into work. I mean, they were really supportive. So I call my answering machine. I you know, do, 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 do. listen, and it's the lady from the admissions office saying, we have a seat for you. Come with $1,800 or so. I don't know. It was 1800 $1,200. I don't know how much it was. It's it was a, a lot, lot of money. It was a lot of money back yeah. then. And, and I looked at my bank account. Yeah. My bank account had like $500 in it. And I called my dad who is, you know, a particle physicist, but you know, he's not rich. He's, you know, he worked, he's a working guy. Right. But you know, a physicist and a, um, a researcher. And I call him up and I said, listen, dad, I just got into medical school. I need $1,200. Can you send it to me? <laughs> so the only time I've ever used Western Union and I go to Western Union, oh. I pick up the money and I go there and I give them, it was five days, five days. So I missed like all the pomp and circumstance. I missed the white coat ceremony. I didn't even know that was an option. And, um, and you know, here I am. <laughs> awesome. And then you decided to be a general surgeon, correct? I did. Yeah. It's really interesting. My, I always thought because of my son's treatment, I thought I would do pediatric oncology. I really did. But what, when I looked back at my career in all of my rotations, and this was in, when I was a fourth year medical student, I was starting to think about applying to residencies. And I said, well, I'm going to do a rotating internship because it was, that was the thing back then. And then I can decide after that. Mm -hmm. But then when I, I did like kind of a, an assessment of everything I'd done and I was always in the OR, I was always going to the OR. It didn't matter what rotation. If I was on family practice, I went to the OR with their patients. If I was on internal medicine, I went to the OR with their patients. And, and when, when I did, I did, I went to um, city of hope and it was a surgical rotation. And so I was like, Oh, okay. I need to do surgery. And so I got, I, I went to Chicago for an internship and then came to New York for surgery and then stayed. And that's what, <clears throat> excuse me. Are you in New York now? Yes. I'm in New York in Westchester County. Yeah. Okay. And I, uh, when was it you started getting disenfranchised about the, the system? It, you know, it was surgery? almost immediate actually. And the, the problem is for me is I'm, um, I'm fundamentally unemployable. So I'm, I'm op oppositionally defiant. I am a bit ADD. I'm a bit Asperger-y. I'm a bit autistic and I need to have things my way. And so I don't really fit into the box. And for me to have to work inside the system of the hospital was really hard. And the politics, I couldn't navigate them. I, I, I was really, I'm just not good with that. I'm, I'm very direct and blunt, as you can tell. Probably just, you know, people either like me or they don't. And, I, you know, I've, I've accepted that. Which so, makes you a good surgeon, by the way. <laughs> you know? Well, really? Yeah. But I'm not very touchy-feely. And so, yeah, you know, yeah. some surgeons are and some surgeons aren't. And I'm just not. And so what happened was I, I grew my practice 
I hired a, a consultant to help me and I grew my practice to, I had four employed surgeons working for me at, out of two different hospitals. And my goal was to actually kind of extricate myself from the day to day. So I wouldn't have to operate and put, um, and put myself more in a leadership role and then you kind know, of replace myself. Right. And what I found was that surgeons are assholes and they're hard to lead. <laughs> now, not, not, not to, not all surgeons are like that, but yeah, surgeons yeah, are hard to lead. <laughs> want to be, they want to be the boss. And it's, um, it, I didn't enjoy it at all. And I got, I got really depressed and, uh, had some fleeting suicidal thoughts. And I would look, I looked at my life and I said, this is not how I want to live. And then when COVID happened, I was like, oh, this is a great opportunity to close everything down. And so, in July of 2020, I put up my scalpel and uh, that was it. And I actually thought I was leaving medicine for forever. Wow. And it took me 18 months to realize that it was burnout that was causing my issues. I had, um, you know, I had been taking so much call for so many years and not getting enough sleep. And I had ballooned, my weight ballooned. I wasn't taking care of myself and and I had this recurring thought that I just want to sleep through the night. I just I just want to sleep through the night. That's all I want. And that was that was a big deal to me. I want to be able to exercise. I don't I want I don't want to be on call anymore. I don't want to be disturbed. So I thought I I just and I didn't see a path forward in medicine. So I started a business um, about menopause and and you can still buy the menopause stuff and we're actually continuing to sell it um but it's not my main focus anymore and i as i started looking i'm like i'm a doctor i have skills i can learn new skills <laughs> i can be i can still help people as a doctor and people will pay me and so that's kind of how i transitioned into lifestyle medicine this year and i will say it's kind of a common story for a lot of us in healthcare i mean i'm guilty of it too um, mine was a little bit earlier in my career than yours, but, uh, you know, when my kids got to be teenagers or young teenagers, I'm like, you know, I want to be able to be healthy with my kids. I want to be able to ride bikes with them. I want to be able to, yeah. you know, play baseball with them instead of just, you know, sitting on the couch and being tired all the time. And, and, and really when you look at, you and I were chatting before the podcast when you look at, uh, you know, go to a typical hospital and go into the lunchroom at lunch and just look at the healthcare workers and how unhealthy most of them are. Shift work, you know, not sleeping and, um, you know, then not eating well and eating at poor times and not eating good food. And, you know, the the health of we're supposed to keep patients healthy, yet most of us aren't healthy. So that's when I had an aha moment. And I'm so glad I did. And I'm glad you did because you're right. We have skills and people need us. And, yeah. you know, and we need to, you know, we can educate them to be healthy themselves. And I think we have to start with ourselves. We have to be good examples. And most healthcare professionals are not. Right. Well, that I think that's really a, a big problem is that we're, we're not taught self-care in medical school. And as a matter of fact, in residency, we're taught, um, you know, to put ourselves last. And this expectation that doctors, especially of all, of all healthcare, will donate their time, 
are expected to work without compensation. You know, throughout the whole pandemic, doctors were expected to work more without more compensation, but no other person, no other member of the healthcare team was expected to work multiple extra shifts without compensation. And that is, I think, the biggest issue is that we we spend the most time learning how to do our craft and then we take the most responsibility and um and then and then we have we have the most liability because nurse practitioners and PAs are hard to sue and doctors are easier to sue so it's it's a it's a real conundrum i think uh in the medical field and i think it's done on purpose i think we're taught certain things were taught how to manage disease, not to prevent disease. Yeah, I, I, for sure. You know, I just, uh, posted a video a few days ago on, um, three classes of drugs I would not take. And, and one of them was one of the class of drugs is, is statins. And, you know, I don't believe Lipitor or Mevacor or what have you, you know, or cholesterol in general is really the problem that's causing heart disease. Um, it's sugar. Yeah. I mean, it's sugar. sugar makes everything sticky. If statins work so well to prevent heart, heart disease, Dr. Gordon, then how could every, everybody's on them? Not everybody. That's a strong term, but they've been around for over 30 years and yet yeah. heart disease is an all time high. It's not cholesterol. Well, that's probably true, but you know, you also have to, I mean, the randomized controlled trials do show that they prolong life. And so it's, it's hard. You have to balance it. Um, I've never taken a statin. I like to run. I think. Well, right. And, you know, running increases your HDL, decrease your triglycerides, which are probably the two of the most important lipids. But I think it's about insulin, um, you know, insulin resistance and, and high insulin levels um, are, is what causes a lot of the problems. Well, it's the, the, not just that, but it's, you know, the high insulin levels and then obesity and then leptin resistance on top of that. Right. So if, if the average American eats about 80 pounds of sugar a year, I mean, think of 80, think about that 80 pounds. I mean, that's a, you know, half a person's body weight in sugar. Well, and on top of that, if you, you know, all of the studies that showed that, that sugar was poison to us have been suppressed, just like what happened with tobacco. Because remember, America, we, we like to pretend that we're the land of the free and the home of the brave. But what we really are is the land of the corporation and the home of the profit. I, one thing good about COVID, Dr. Gordon, is I think that got exposed during covid and people are waking up and just realize how much the, the corporations, you know, have, have done, you know, RFK Jr. I don't know if you follow him, but he used the term I've never heard of agency capture. Mm-hmm. And the corporations have basically, you know, big corporations have basically taken over the federal government. Agencies. Oh, it's been, it's not, it, that's not new. That's been going on since yes. the thirties. And yeah. so it, it's, it's, you know, since I think since the crash of wall street, that probably, you know, that was that 29, yeah, 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 and then it, if you get into the history of it, that that happened after the Federal Reserve was created in 1913, and that's when it all went downhill. Holding the story, topic for yeah, different. I mean, you know, Nixon and the gold standard and all those things, right? I mean, but by the same token, 
when money is involved, which it usually is with everything, you know, follow the money. And when you look at the food industry or the drug industry, um, medicine in general, I mean, medicine in general is controlled by insurance companies and drug companies and insurance companies are in collusion together. I mean, seriously, you just look at what EMRs do. And I I don't know from a general surgeon standpoint, um, how much, you know, drug therapy you're told how to prescribe. I don't, I don't know, but from an, you know, internal medicine or family practice doctor, they are told based their EMR is tracked by insurance companies and drug companies tell insurance companies what's on formulary. And if somebody's had a heart attack, they need to be prescribed this, yep. they, you know, X, Y, Z. Well, and right? there's Medicare rules. I mean, if, if you participate with Medicare and you don't want to lose 2% of your income, exactly. then you have to do certain things. And so what's, what's happened, I think with doctors who used to be very, very respected as pillars of the community and, smart is that what's happened is the the commoditization of healthcare in America, especially by these big insurance conglomerates, and then you know the pharm- pharma- pharmaceutical complex, the big pharmaceutical industrial complex. What's happened is that they've found the scapegoat to be doctors, and doctors have taken it because there are laws against doctors organizing. There's laws against doctors having normal business relationships that everybody else has. And and so it would be illegal in any other industry. Yeah. And so what it's, it's completely legal for a lawyer to refer a client to them, to someone and pay them uh, and get paid. It's completely illegal for a doctor who accepts Medicare to do that. Yeah. And so the, 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 what's happened is doctors have become the factory workers of the medical industrial complex. And yeah, they're high paid. But remember, kids are coming out of medical school now with over $500,000 of debt. And so they're, we're saddling these kids with a house payment without them being able to make enough money to buy a house. Which I think you know? is by design, by the way, Dr. Gordon. Of course it is. Yeah, it's, it's all, I mean, yeah. open a medical school, you'll make a lot of money. I mean, that's medical schools are, are it, it's, they're it's, printing money. That's, it's about money. Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. So it, the 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 what there there are people like me. Uh, there's a lot of us out there who just completely don't even stay inside the system. And so I do not take insurance. I don't. Will never work for an insurance company again. When I did, when I did general surgery, I didn't take insurance, but we still build insurance. Now I won't even bill insurance. Now, if you want to come to me for lifestyle modifications or obesity or menopause, whatever, uh, you pay me directly. I'll give you a super bill. You can work for the insurance company and get your money back. Um, rates are fair, but I, I just, you know, a lot of people have a very high deductible. So why not spend your deductible with someone who's going to spend time with you and really help you solve your problems and maybe help you change your lifestyle in a way that is actually going to produce positive changes in your life instead of taking another drug. Right. Now, speaking of drug therapy, um, how about let's, let's put you in the hot seat being a surgeon. And I interviewed Dr. Sean Baker. I don't know if you've heard of him. He's a, a orthopedic surgeon turned kind of lifestyle medicine guy. And um, he started changing people's lives when he started changing their diets and then they didn't need surgery anymore. Um, true. Yeah. So and I was astounded when he told me the numbers. I asked him live on our podcast. So Dr. Baker, 
if people, you know, as a pharmacist, I'm like, you know, I know that 80% of the drugs are not needed if you change your lifestyle. But I thought, you know, this is surgery. This is orthopedic surgery. I mean, I mean, at least, you know, over 70% of, of the uh, surgeries that are done have to be done. His claim was that over 80% of orthopedic surgeries are unnecessary if people change their lifestyle. I was blown away. So what about in general surgery? I mean, are there certain diseases that people can, certain procedures that people don't need if they change their lifestyle? I think, I think so. I mean, one of the most common general surgical procedures is the cholecystectomy. Right, right. And that comes primarily from lecithin or cholesterol gallstones that get precipitated out of, um, out of the bile into, into the gallbladder. And these stones can then cause pancreatitis. They can cause all sorts of pain after eating. And I think that the high sugar, high fat diet of America, the sad standard American diet really contributes to this. Now, is it possible to reverse this with a better diet? I don't have the data on that, and I don't know if that's ever been studied. But what I can say is that the if if you want to avoid gallbladder surgery, then the thing to do is to eat a plant-forward diet with lean meats and whole foods. Right. <laughs> I mean, some people are predisposed. Now, yeah. as far as like appendicitis go, that that's like you know, ten to fifteen percent of the population gets appendicitis. Um, that it happens in families. I've seen. I've, I've done three generations in the past. Interesting. So, I, you know, oftentimes the the pathophysiology of appendicitis is you know a little fecal ball that gets stuck, um, and then the the opening of the appendix gets blocked and then there's nothing you can do. Or an infected maybe too. Well, it gets blocked because what the actual function of the appendix is to reset the gut microbiome. And if you don't have an appendix, it's harder to reset your gut microbiome. So it has, and so if the, if the appendix gets blocked, yeah, the, the bacteria in there will overgrow and cause inflammation. So, but the body does its best to ward it off and, and try and help it heal. But if it, if the, if the fluids can't go back and forth, then. Right. Yeah. And that's why the appendix will burst sometimes. So I don't think that's another very common uh, general surgical procedure. Now for the last 10 years of my practice, all I did was emergencies. So as a, as, as someone who works with people out of, out of the emergency room, primarily, I mean, I saw a lot of perforated colons, a lot of perforated stomach ulcers. You know, if you don't smoke, I mean, stopping smoking is probably the best thing you can do for your health, uh, bar none, if you're a smoker, because that will decrease all the inflammation. And then, and then, you know, if if you if you don't exercise at all, the there there are things you can do to get yourself to move again. I mean, sometimes if if you're maybe a you know hundred, t- couple hundred pounds overweight and it really is hard to move then just start by swaying your body back and forth right. you know um and do that for a few minutes get your heart rate up and then and then you can start to move more you know you don't have to do it all or none and that that was a big lesson for me because i gained in menopause i gained probably 60 70 pounds and i was really frustrated because it just kept coming and I did not know what to do. And I wasn't really exercising. So I hired a coach to, to kind of get myself going. And 
after a couple of years of just being on the cycle, I, the bicycle, I, I said, oh, let me, let me try running. And then I said, let me try swimming. And I started doing these things. But um, for women who are menopausal, probably the best way to reshape your body is, is resistance training. And that's not always fun. Boom. But it is. It is so important. My wife and I had a podcast dedicated to that just uh, this last week. Yeah. Yeah. Um, if you really want to re- reshape your body, it's resistance training and high protein. Yeah. Um, and it's really interesting because there's a lot of data out there. And if you read the data from muscle, you know, like bodybuilders, that's I, without the hormones, you know, forget about like dealing with hormones, but bodybuilders, it's their, their primary fuel is protein and, and they almost never eat excessive carbs. Yeah, no. Um, it, it, I mean, think about what muscle, what, what is muscle? I mean, muscle is protein. I mean, it, it, that makes well, a lot it's of not sense. just that, but it's the thermic effect of food. It, it, right, right? right. So, yeah. you know, we have, we, we expend energy just, just by sitting and it, the more you weigh, the more your energy that you expend will be. That's just because of mass, the mass effect, right? That's, yeah, that's, right? Just, that's called resting metabolic rate. Yeah. But then um, you have intentional exercise, which will be maybe 30% of your of your calories burned if you're doing enough of it. And then thermic effect of food is 10% of your total calories. And that that can go up if you're mostly protein. Yeah. So there's ways, and, ways to burn more calories. And when it has to do with weight, I mean, you know, um, I always say that you know, you can't exercise your way out of a poor diet. I mean, so you just can't, you, you got it. E- eating is so important. You can't exercise yeah. over a bad diet. I've right. Tried. Well, exercise, exercise can, can help you feel better. It can help your depression. Uh, these are all benefits of exercise, but exercise does not help you lose weight. Exercise helps you take care of your body and helps your mental health. And it can help shape your body, especially resistance training. But if you want to lose weight, you've got to start in the kitchen. Yeah. And then another thing I like to always say, too, is um, you already alluded to it when you were in med school about how, you know, you weren't sleeping and um, is sleep. Another thing that we can do for our body is sleep and sleep, sleep trumps exercise and and um, diet because we will. And this is what I tell patients. We will die without sleep before we'll die without food. That those are that's just a fact. Yeah, yeah. You get start getting hallucinations and psychosis and stuff. Yeah, sleep deprivation. I mean, that's listen. I'm in the self help space, right? Like I, I'm in the personal development space, and somebody that I will never, ever, ever pay money to is Tony Robbins, and and the reason is is because sleep deprivation is a big part of his. Really? Breakdown. Yeah. So when you do uh, one of the Tony that. Robbins seminars, he keeps you up late, like 2 a.m. And then they start at maybe, you know, eight, 10, 9 or 10 the next morning. And that's that that will decrease your vulnerability, you know, increase your vulnerability, decrease your defenses. Your immune system, um, yeah. But uh, but no, but even even your psychological, because he's an NLP practitioner. So to try and help you like break through to the next level. But um, I won't do it because I spent all those years on call, you know, and also one thing I should tell you is I smoked all the way through med school and residency. Wow. And, and so, um, but I, man, when I was a chief resident, so it was my last year of residency, it was my fifth year. I woke up one day and said, I'm done smoking. And I got somebody to give me a prescription for Wellbutrin. Yeah. Um, and I didn't even know it, but I was taking double the dose. I took 300 milligrams twice a day. 
don't do that. <laughs> yeah. You can <laughs> tolerate it. One of the biggest problems. I took 300 milligrams twice a day. You can tolerate it? You weren't getting nauseous? I was great. I felt so happy. Um, <laughs> but um, it took, in three days, I stopped smoking, and I ne I've never smoked since. Was that late? That was early 2000s, probably? That was late? 2004. Okay, yeah. Yeah, so it's been about 20 years since I quit, since I quit smoking. But all, and I haven't had any cravings or anything. It was just like yeah. I was done. I was outside smoking, you know, with with the other guys when they were smoking, and I just was like, no, I'm done. Um, and I probably took it for like two weeks and realized I had doubled up the dose. But don't do that because, and I didn't know, you know, I did, yeah. I didn't know, but I, I I just was so motivated to quit, so motivated to quit. So yeah. So now with um, this history and these stories that you've had, how has that helped you? Um, talk to patients about lifestyle medication about lifestyle modifications. Yeah, it's. I think I think what has helped is is to find the motivation. If you can't, if you don't have a why, you're not going to follow. You can't rely on on discipline forever, right? I mean, discipline is destiny, and and I I do believe that you know you you, you start with discipline, and then it becomes habit, and then but you have to change your habits. But if you if you try to do it all at once you're going to, you're going to have some failure and then you're going to give up. Right. And so what I like to do is, is find out what the motivation is for someone. Like, you know, why did I want to quit smoking? Well, because I felt like shit. Yeah. Okay. I just, I really felt bad and I wanted to feel better. And so that was, that was the first thing. And then, you know, why did I, why did I decide to, um, change my diet? Because I felt like shit and right. I wanted to feel better. <laughs> you know, so, so it, it, but not everybody feels like shit and they, they don't see it. Sometimes you don't start to see that you feel better until you make those changes and those changes are subtle. They take time. Yeah, absolutely. I, I don't want to, you know, my why was, which I already talked about was I wanted to be healthy for my kids mm -hmm. so I could change my kids. Um, but you know, some of the side effects of that was I did feel better. <laughs> I did look better. So I yeah. felt better about myself. And then, um, you know, I, I also say too that, um, you know, health is contagious and, you know, I changed our family because of it. I was not a good role model and I had a son that was overweight and my wife was overweight. And, you know, now, I mean, both my sons are just, they're rock stars. They go to the gym. I don't know how many times a week they eat great, um, you know? Um, and, and I think it, it, it uh, rubs off on other people around us, not just our family, but our friends, our coworkers. Sure. Um, yeah. So tell us about a recent story where you've helped a patient um, on their, on their lifestyle change. So um, I have to go back to the menopause stuff because I am not seeing patients yet. Yeah. Okay. I am just, I am just really getting, getting into this lifestyle medicine yeah. and um, FYI, I'm in the process of getting licensed in multiple States. So if you want to work with me, if you live in Colorado or like right now, let me, let me tell you exactly where I'm licensed right now. You got to look it up. <laughs> I have to look at, I don't remember. Yeah, right. <laughs> I, I don't know. Uh, here it is. Okay. I'm Florida, Colorado, Utah, Virginia, New York, uh, Texas, and Connecticut. And not New Jersey. That's a Not yet. It's coming. Not yet. Yeah. It's coming. I just, I just haven't gotten it yet. Yeah. Um, let me just double check that again. Colorado, Connecticut, Florida, Utah, Virginia, New York, Texas. Um, and then in the works, 
I have uh, California, Washington, Wyoming, Montana, uh, the, all the West. Yeah. Utah. I got Utah already. Um, Nevada, New Mexico, except for Oregon, because I never want to live in Oregon. Most of really close to Oregon when you lived in Richland. <laughs> What's that? Well, you were really close to Oregon when you were in Richland. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, Hermiston's Hermiston's right like there. 30 miles, 20 miles away. <laughs> yeah. Um, Idaho and uh, the most of the eastern seaboard plus um, plus Tennessee. So those yeah. are those are in the works. Um, and I'll be, I'll be seeing patients, but how, how I've helped people is it starts with the why it starts with what, what do you want your ideal life to look like? It really starts with that. And I have a full exercise. I take people through that, that breaks down the ideal day and it is granular. It is, what do you eat? How do you wake up? Who do you wake up with? That kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. And then we start to work backwards from that. Like, what do you have to do? And, and what does that look like? What is your body like? What is, what is your relationship like? What is your sex life like? What is, you know, all these things. And we start to work toward it little by little by little. And these, what I like to say is that 1% changes change, add up into massive, massive improvements. So if, if I run, say, 20 minutes without stopping today and run 20 minutes and 20 seconds without stopping, you know, tomorrow, yeah. right, yeah. then eventually I'm going to be able to run a marathon if that's my goal. Yeah. yeah. But it, it takes time and it's dose dependent and it requires consistency and, and going through when, when the motivation is down and finding discipline. So, so there's, there's a lot there. So the support is really what makes the big difference. I have a client named Joan who uh, was living in Florida and was very unhappy there because the political climate was not kind of what she believed. And, and Florida became very, very, very red um, pretty quickly around Trump. And it was really upsetting her and she was very unhappy. And she said, I want to paint the Rocky shoreline. And over a series of two years, she decided, okay, I'm going to sell my house because the market is up and it's on the water. And she moved out and she had it renovated and she got it sold and she moved to Maine to paint the Rocky shoreline. And those were just little, and it was small steps. But if you think about it, if you've lived in a place for 40 years, think about all the accumulated crap you have to get rid of. Like I've lived in my house since 2008 and I feel like I'm buried. Yeah. 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 Right. So, so that's, that's one example of lifestyle changes. I have another uh, client named Diane who we were talking and, and she said, you know, I've always wanted to get a PhD. And I said, well, why haven't you? Do it. (laughs) And so she'll get her PhD this year. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So, so it it really comes back to what it is you want in your life. Well, I, I, Thank you so much for not totally quitting medicine because we need doctors like yourself. And, um, you know, you're, you're, you're very well qualified. And I, 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 I'm up, I'm upset when doctors leave the system and because they need to find what's, you know, maybe a different place for them because, you know, you're the, you're the doctors are the most educated person in the United States. I mean, think about it. 
You know, really, really highly. We know how to study. Yeah. So don't let the system, you know, don't just throw the baby out of the bathwater. Just find a different parallel system, which is what you've done. And and I'm so glad. And um, as we wind this podcast up, I want to ask you what your passion is. My passion. I would say, you know, I'm I'm multi-passionate. And and since since I have a bit of uh, neurodivergence, I I do go uh, into hyperfixations. So <laughs> um, I do. I'm very passionate about cooking, and um, I love to cook really good food. And I learned how to cook. I had a chef for several years when I was working as a surgeon. I had a chef working in my house for like seven years, and I learned how to cook from her. Um, I knew how to cook before, but now like I know that I can cook food that I will want to eat, and I'll like it. Yeah. For the most, I mean, it's every once in a while I'll do something that's really not that good, but really, like, <laughs> yeah, every once in a while. But but like, and and there's nothing I can't do. Like I can bake, and I can cook a full, you know, like I could cook a full like English, like what do they call Sunday dinner kind of thing, like a Thanksgiving dinner. I can do all that. I can make candy. I can make current caramel. I mean, so there's nothing I won't try, but I really like. I really enjoy baking, um, but I'm not baking right now because I'm in a. I'm trying to cut weight. Yeah, um, that's it's tough when you're baking. Not yeah. Not yeah. <laughs> uh, so so I'm I'm very very passionate about creativity in the kitchen because one thing I've found is that I can eat 99% fat free turkey and enjoy it if I know how to put the spices together. For and sure. that was that was you know and I mean fat free meat is is hard to eat because it's so dry. Yeah. So, so that, that's, I think a big passion for me, um, getting back into weightlifting. And so I'm a bit passionate about that and I'm very, very passionate about behavior change and habit building and how to uh, be excellent. Those are, those are big, big things for me. That's awesome. Um, well, I, you've helped us realize our goal of, of this podcast, which is to educate and empower individuals to take charge of their own health. And that's really that's really, you know, they, they see, they see you or they see me, um, you know, maybe one hour a month if they're lucky, yeah. um, you know, so ultimately they have to take charge of their, of their own health. Right. That's true. Yeah, they do. And we can help teach them. So, so you can, you can get a hold of me, um, like at drmichellegordon.com. Yeah. Uh, I, I want to stream your website. I know it's in, it's in, uh, um, designs phase still. But, it's still um, in those. Yeah, we're we're actually getting ready to revamp the whole thing. But if you want to call me, I have a phone number. Awesome. Well, it's, say it. Let's say it. Nine one four four two zero eight four two zero. Can you put that on the screen? I, I can. Give me. Give me just a yeah. second. I'll um, put it. In, uh, and then uh, let's see. Um, I was going to ask you. Oh yeah, about tell me about your biking cuz my wife and I are avid bikers. So, yeah, I I love 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 cycling um but I'm not cycling on the road much anymore. I mostly cycle indoors. Uh, it depends on where I am in the country. What I've found is that here in Westchester County, the cars do not give us a lot of room and I um I've fallen off the bike a few times avoiding cars, so I I don't want to die and so I ride indoors. But a few years ago, I, I took a big group of women to uh, Majorca, and we r- rode our bikes around and, and filmed it. And, and that's um, probably the first, the first eight episodes of the Menopause Movement podcast are this, uh, this, this TV show that I did. So if you go into 
uh, YouTube for menopause movement, or maybe even Dr. Michelle Gordon on YouTube. You can watch those, that TV show uh, it's, cool. it's there on YouTube. I want to yeah. watch that. <laughs> yeah. It's good. Yeah. Um, if you, yeah, it's um the Dr. Michelle Gordon show, but if you have to go to the podcast, so like launch your life podcast on Dr. Michelle Gordon, I think menopause movement still has a YouTube. Um, so Is yeah. Your, are your phone number right there? That's correct. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. So, well, thank you, Michelle, for being on the podcast today. I really want to keep in touch with you. If you are ever in back in Washington, my wife and I would love to go for a bike ride with you. Oh yeah, I definitely would want to do that. I used to ride all over whenever I went there for my, for my dad to see my dad, I would ride my bike. They make it. The one thing I like about Richland, I have to say is they make it really, really easy to, um, to to be active there's lots of there's that absolutely there's that one trail that follows the river i don't know what it's called the river trail or whatever yeah richland that's it goes past leslie grove park and then if you keep going on it you end up at like one of the nuclear submarines you you go all the way exactly i've been out there (laughs) multiple times when i travel drive to the end it's where all the little stickers are that'll flatten your tire (laughs) yeah you drive to the end it's like a nuclear sign you're like ah I'm going to get radioactive. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much for being on our podcast. I right, truly appreciate it. And, let, and let's stay in touch. Right. And and listeners and viewers, thank you for tuning in to Health Solutions with Sean and Janet Needham. Tune in Monday to our regularly scheduled podcast, uh, 1230 to 1.30 Pacific Standard Time. Thank you for tuning in to Health Solutions with Sean and Janet Needham. 